Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Leaders of Color. Today, we have Gurneet Kaur Dami, who is a Punjabi Sikh settler traveling between Ontario and Nova Scotia. Her master's thesis at Mount St. Vincent University seeks to explore the experiences of racialized dietitians in Canada, which is the first comprehensive study of its kind in Canadian dietetics. She began her dietetic journey at Ryerson University, where she completed her Bachelor's of Science in Nutrition and Food, along with a certificate in food security. She is leading conversations grounded in anti-racism, dietetic diversity, and food security in Canada through presentations, podcasts, and upcoming projects as a social justice advocate. In her community of York Region, Gurneet is mobilizing food justice with a youth food committee in partnership with the York Region Food Network. She is a Diversified Dietetics Canada ambassador on Facebook with her colleague Sephora Saeed, which was born out of the American organization Diversified Dietetics, started by dietetics professionals Tamara Melton and Deanna Bellany. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. And it's, yeah, it's great connecting, Sarisha, and I guess I've just always been a fan. <laughs> and I know I told you that before. I just <laughs> think I was back in Halifax <laughs> when I was like, I guess, starting off or just kind of getting into my thesis or the work. And I always look back to Ontario or anywhere else in Canada. I'm like, what's like, what's on the radar? What are other people doing? And sometimes, you know, like when you see community organizing and it kind of always gives you hope and you're like, sometimes that's just what you need to listen to and kind of grow your energy from. Oh, that's amazing. I'm glad, I'm glad that people are noticing labor being done, yeah. which is awesome. So thank you for that. How are you doing? What has your experience been over the past year? We're heading into March now, which is like fully a year, I think, of most of us being either hidden away in quarantine or dealing with COVID in, in some aspect. Have you been able to do anything supportive, I guess, during your time? I know you're very busy. Um, but what what have you been experiencing during quarantine? Yeah, I guess like, yeah, even looking at today's day, right? I remember my friend, yeah, Sephora and I were roommates back in Halifax. You know, we were just hearing things in the news right now. We were planning our events for uh, March. So literally, I think it was we got to go to all the events we mostly had for March. And yeah, when COVID hit, we just, you know, packed up everything, came back home to Ontario. And it's, I'm just thinking back, I'm like, summer has passed, fall, I would say like, it's been a good reflective period. Just thinking about things, just being with yourself. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I feel like when you're always on the go, like I would always go to events, still do that in other ways, I would travel. Sometimes you're just always you want to sit down and write something in your journal, but you're always on the go. And you just don't have that time and space. So I feel like there's been a lot of time and mental space and there's also been a lot of organizing around and sometimes you want to really talk about things but you don't really know where to start or who to go to and or if anyone's interested. So I would just say like maybe my own work around yeah like anti-racism and diversity in dietetics. Like certain people we would always talk about it but it was never a headline headline. So I feel like and mm -hmm. I guess unfortunate turn of events, like it has become a headline, but it's always been there. And it's just now more so how do we hold people in power and privilege accountable? And also as a profession, like everyone has a role to play, right? Like whether you're mm -hmm. a student, an intern, educator, like it's, we're all in the structure and we're, we make up the system. So it's been a lot of analyzing and things like that. Sometimes I feel like 
I watch too many spy movies. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Which ones? Like, you know, John Wick. Uh, I don't think my brother would say Born Identity is a movie. <laughs> but, you know, like I go through the list and I'm like, mm-hmm. sometimes it's more of the experience and you kind of see how people are going about doing things. And that's kind of the action I get nowadays is spy movies. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. living as a spy. Fair enough. I think that's great. <laughs> the the spies that are not of the real system of spies, yes. per se. <laughs> but yeah, so so tell me a little bit about the work that you're you're doing and the organizations that you're a part of. I guess it kind of starts from like where it kind of even started, right? I started my master's back in 2017, and I always wanted to look at diversity in dietetics, and there's always a lot of stuff in the States. But there wasn't much conversation, I, I guess, like formal conversation in Canada. Like, yeah, we use the word diversity, inclusion, but what are we really trying to get at? Like anti-racism, like underrepresentation of ethnic and racial populations. And specifically, like, yeah, being in nutrition and being a dietitian. So, like, I guess for those that don't know, like a dietitian is a registered health professional And you tend to see dietitians like in hospitals, long-term care, food service, business, a lot of different environments, community. And yeah, like, you know, we credit ourselves for being nutrition experts, but like, who are we at the end of the day? Like, how much do we represent the diverse Canadian population? That's something that there isn't any data on. And that's something that always like stumbled me because I'm like, we're such an evidence-based profession and we don't have this. Like, why is that? And I think now I kind of gone to the point, like most of the dietetic profession is, it is, there is an overrepresentation of white female. So that's the most of the profession. So if you see yourself represented, you're not wondering why mm-hmm. you're there type of thing. It's kind of like, if you're not really thinking of buying a car, you're not going to think about the color of the car because you're not going there type of thing. So yeah, like there just hasn't been a focus. And now there's more discussion about white supremacy and decolonizing. But yeah, we still don't have the data. And I'm going back to like, when this, when did we kind of start Canadian wide? Yeah, I got connected with Deanna and Tamara back way back when from my advisor and just like Google searches, because that's where you find everything these days. And we just got into a little bit of a chat. They kind of connected me. They have a mentoring program. So that's where I met my mentor, who's a Canadian dietitian. Vinci to Silo and that was I think back in like September 2018 and you know like we're always talking with Deanna and Tamara in between and then Vinci was like a great mentor and we still chat and she's been very supportive but you know I got to the point like we need to why don't we have formal spaces to talk about this and it wasn't until like 2019 October there's another group in dietetics called Critical Dietetics and There are a lot like educators, academics, students kind of put together and they had a conference back in Halifax and I was there and um, my friend and I, Sephora and I got to organize the first like meetup. And I guess we were more so, I guess my focus in the beginning and still now like is to reclaim space. So it was pretty much only for people that identify as being black, indigenous or yeah, people of color. And to be honest, like we never had that before. And a lot of white individuals signed up and even my own classmates. And I kind of had to notify people 
I guess overall the organization is inclusive. Like if you go on Diversify Dietetics website, we do have a lot of allyship with um, other racial ethnic groups. But I think just for me in Canada, I wanted to do a separate kind of meeting. Mm-hmm. And apply it to the Canadian context. Yeah, like just because mm-hmm. we never had a discussion at all, right? So I just wanted it to be a bit of a closed space. And that was a bit controversial because I heard things from my classmates, which wasn't the best. But, you know, it comes to the territory. And we had a really deep discussion from that. We, I guess, a little bit later on when the pandemic hit. Every Yeah. Oh, gosh. See, like when I think about the timeline, I'm like, that wasn't so far yeah. off. <laughs> time is just non-existent. No, anymore. it really isn't. Like, um, yeah. So I think it was more so like May 2020. Sephora and I were just like, maybe we should like have an actual group on Facebook. We reached out to Tamara and Deanna and they helped us. They helped us set us up. So, yeah, we have like two groups. So one is like a formal DD community group. Anyone can join if you're a dietitian or a dietetic student. Um, whether you identify as being from a racial ethnic background or identify as being white, that's open there. And then the separate group that I kind of started from that was just a BIPOC only space because sometimes you really do need your own space to just mm-hmm. talk and vent and just kind of gather, especially mm-hmm. like, I guess, unlike American dietetics, they have a lot of different groups. There's like the Latin group, the Asian group, the black african-american group so they have a lot of subsections in their dietetic population we just don't have that formal organizing here i guess based on the size and mm-hmm. how yeah how canada dietetics is run in other ways so we don't have that formal organizing so that's just something yeah we had on the side and i guess from yeah may 2020 to now there's been on we have about over 600 members on facebook oh, cool. and around like i guess a little under 200 in the other group Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's been growing. Like people post events, people post like jobs and it can be either dietetics or diversity related or, you know, just open forum. Sometimes mm-hmm. you just want to chat about things and we need to like start the dialogue somewhere. I guess giving a little bit background or, you know, a little bit of who's behind Diversified Dietetics, but yeah, what is it exactly? So yeah, Diversified Dietetics is born out of the need that our co-founders and registered dietitians, nutritionists Deanna Bellany and Tamara Melton did not see when they first met. And this kind of goes back to in the context of the United States. And I guess for both of them and the conversations that have come even to Sephora and I here in Canada is the need to empower professionals of color who are seeking a career in the field of nutrition and dietetics. And the mission is really to increase the racial and ethnic diversity in the field of nutrition by empowering future leaders like us. And also with the vision to really kind of get the nutrition profession to reflect the diverse communities we serve. And yeah, definitely check out diversifiedtedx.org to learn more about the organization and how you can support. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. For those who don't necessarily understand, I guess, how white supremacy and racism manifests in this area. Do you mind just shedding some light on what that looks like and how you witness it or experience it? Yeah. And I guess like when you think about that, yeah, it goes back to food, right? So I guess being in Canada, thinking about when we even talk about healthy eating, right? Like what is that? And oftentimes, I guess, I guess even like thinking about your own experience and how maybe you've seen food like how 
is ethnic food kind of classified? What is it classified against or compared against? And oftentimes the Western diet, Eurocentric ways of eating are seen as quote unquote healthy. And oftentimes when we think about like, I guess the number one thing I always hear like for myself, eating Indian food, it's like, oh, that's so oily or that's just like, this is unhealthy. And yeah, of course, like there are greater disease risks with different populations, but we really need to understand where that comes from and what that means. Because when you think about specifically the indigenous population, we need to understand colonization, like that's impacted so much. Like why are the rates with diabetes so high? Thinking about the past histories and trauma. So there's a lot there in health. And when you think about food and how it's classified and also like the system of dietetics. And when you think about white supremacy, it's what's the image that comes to mind? I know if you just Google it, you'll see like typically a white, thin, blonde woman with like a lab coat. Like that's for sure going to pop up in your top three Google searches images right there. So it's like the default image. It's what is upheld. Kind of the professionalism too, right? When you think about how are you supposed to act, perfectionism, trying to be perfect, how the structures are even put up for internship. It's very, you're going for an unpaid internship and it's very exclusive. So there's a lot of those other barriers and where do conversations about anti-racism, anti-oppression kind of come in? And honestly, like, I think things maybe are changing from what I hear around, but from the longest time, like, you know, that's never at the forefront. It's not there. It's very ingrained in like the overall system. And I don't think dietetics has openly like acknowledged, acknowledged that certain groups here and there talk about it or educators and researchers might mention it, but yeah, it hasn't fully been decolonized and I guess unpacked with you know, talking about white privilege and what does that mean? What does that look like? Microaggressions, those little one-off comments that are said or feeling inferior, maybe if you have an accent or maybe being internationally trained. Like these are things that people have experienced. And I can even say, based on interviews I've done with my research, like that's still kind of ongoing. People have expressed just not feeling like they fit in. And trying so hard to fit in. But what are we trying to fit into? It's just getting accepted into like the white dominant culture. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, I guess, if you can explain a little bit more perhaps about what this relationship between sort of white supremacy and food looks like, not just amongst food scarcity versus food security, but also you brought up the example of like eating Indian food and, and, and comments that are made. Um, and I think in particular in in what is currently Canada, so often we see like veganism being like a very racist sort of movement, I guess, per se, when it comes to being very anti-Indigenous and, and not reflecting on sort of what the needs of communities are and the access that people have is and, and see it sort of manifest very violently often. And I'm wondering if you could maybe just speak to that, like how, what are the changes you're trying to make in this industry and how... Are you going about it in that sort of challenging the white supremacist notions around food? Yeah. And I guess like even when you brought those points up, I'm thinking of like, yeah, when you think about veganism and when you see like those little taglines of eating clean and just those, yeah, like even when it comes to cultural food, cultural food can be really, 
I guess in a way like whitewash, like butter chicken. My parents did not grow up in India eating butter chicken. Yes, very <laughs> valid. Very valid. Neither did mine. That's <laughs> such a concoction of its own. When Yeah, when you think about white supremacy, I'm just thinking about like even food trends, right? Like right now I'm thinking of like turmeric lattes. My mom makes that all the time in the wintertime. I just tell her I don't want to have it. She's like, it's good for you. I'm like, yeah. heat stain. Haldi milk. Yeah, yeah, Haldi does, right? It's just, it is what it is. And after I'm like, no. So my mom gave me like a jar full and I took it to Halifax. And of course I would make it and stuff like that. And actually like my former white roommate was just like, oh, turmeric lattes are like so cool. And like, you know, she spends like six, used to spend like $6 on them and everything. And I'm like, well, I can just make it at home for you if you really want it. But it just goes to like when um, your ethnic food or your ways of being and your lifestyle are discovered, quote unquote, by white individuals. And that mm-hmm. discovery aspect, it takes away from like the history that our communities have with it. And it just comes into this commodified product. So, you know, for mm-hmm. her, it's just more like this is, this is turmeric latte. It's so like, look, it's at least health trend. Look, everyone I'm eating and putting on Instagram versus like, you know, sharing the history and kind of understanding where it comes from and all these other things. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of whitewashing of food over there mm-hmm. and just in general. And that takes away a lot from the history. And I can say like, well, my friend and the person that also co-leads the chapter with me here in Canada, Sephora, she's doing a lot of cool research about like acculturation and just diets and seniors and just thinking about just kind of assimilating what everyone's eating around you and, you know, being a little bit ashamed. Like, I'm sure, like, I think back to way back when I was in going, never really went, went, stayed at school for lunch. But when I did, you know, I would want to just bring Nutella sandwiches. I would not want my mom to give me a pronta or anything like that. I just would want to have a Nutella sandwich. Would I always eat it? No, but I'm just eating it because everyone else is eating it. And that just, you know, other people would maybe bring their cultural food and I would just be like, I wouldn't say anything about it. Other people make fun of it. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to bring that. I'm going to eat that at home. Or, you know, sometimes you want to be the cool kid and be like, dad, can you drop off McDonald's? <laughs> I remember I used to do that once in a while. But like. Oh, like I, after a doctor's appointment or something. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Doctor's appointment or something that is always fun. Like, I'm like, can you drop off a sub? Can you drop off McDonald's? And then I'm like, yeah. But it's just we uphold those other things. And now I guess being in quarantine and everything, like I'm just like when my mom makes something, I'm like, why was I ashamed of this before? Why did I just want to hide this? Why did I not want to eat it? I'm like, because like so much that you kind of hear around you, you just think you kind of start believing it. Or you're like, I'm not comfortable with this until, you know, like the latest restaurant pops up and everyone's like, ooh, cultural fusion cuisine. And you're like, that's not how you actually make it, but okay. Yeah, it sounds like so much of this is very much deeply rooted in in your personal experience. Is that what first motivated you to start doing this work and getting into dietetics? I feel like I came in and like now I have to think back to all that. It was in high school and I was reading. I think I came in with a little bit of a colonial mindset, a little bit blinded to things. Like I had a, my dad knew I liked food and he got like me a cookbook and it was a very Western cookbook about, you know, 101 like recipes and don't forget the chocolate type of thing. And I look back at it, I'm like, it's pretty much just white authors now that I look at it. 
But that was my first time reading something by a dietitian. So it was more of like, oh, recipes. And I think I deep down, I always knew there was something about culture. I'm like, yeah, we make food at home. I like that. I like food science. Well, I wouldn't want to work in a lab. I like working and talking, yeah, about nutrition. And we had a course in high school about that. So I think it kind of came from that. But I think I went in with a, diff- a naive picture. And so when I went to university and then I just noticed a competition, noticed spots are very limited to be a dietitian, noticed the dis- mainstream discussion. Like I used to love just going to my electives, which were sociology. I didn't like going to my core courses because people would just, you know, talk like more mainstream stuff. And I didn't have the language back then to de- describe it. But yeah, there was just always something in the air that I didn't like. And I'm like, well, I need to explore this more. And I think that's where that desire to like do further research, work with diverse communities kind of came from. And yeah, going to my master's. Yeah, it was always like when I first met my supervisor, I'm like, I want to do something about food and culture. And it was a little bit different. But then I told her about experience I had in university of someone kind of saying behind my back, I'm never going to fit in wherever I go. And my other, like my friend told me that and she, my friend replied back to that person saying, well, Gurneet's not that dark. So, and I look back at that and I laughed at that point. But now when I think back to it, I'm like, that was a was very racist comment. That was such a microaggression from like another person that is from a racial ethnic group. So Mm -hmm. lateral violence. Yeah. Like you hear that and you think about that and you're just like, this person used to say that stuff about everyone. Like, honestly, it was like, kind of judging who got into internship who is going to sink or swim it's yeah it can be a very toxic culture and them finding out whether I was going to go I don't know to northern Ontario for an internship or going to Halifax which is predominantly white and but I also have to recognize like yeah I do have brown skin but I also have a bit of privilege because I am lighter in color for sure but like just saying that and thinking about it now, I'm like, what's going through their mind? And this is, you know, other people are probably assuming this too. So when I share that experience with my supervisor and, you know, like the topic kind of just came up, like, you know, experiences of maybe racialized students at that point, And I shifted over to just dietitians. And that's been quite a journey because I, you know, I got to do the interviews last summer and with everything going on in the social justice movements, it was emotional. I uncover so much trauma that I didn't even know I had or, you know, vicariously living it through other people. So I'm just like, wow, this is so much. And so many people have these stories that they've kept. And like some people I interviewed are like more than two decades in the profession. And I'm like, wow, you never told anyone this before. You just, you just kind of had to do what you had to do. So it's not nothing just from the past. It's going on even right now. And like for myself, I try to bring these conversations up more, create discomfort. I'm in discomfort too. And you know, you need to even recognize your own privileges all the time too. And that's been something I've been doing at home with my family too. You know, like sometimes there can be like some defensiveness, but you kind of need to take away the defensiveness if you really want to get to the core. And if you really want to be a part of the solution or just, uh, just contribute to the problem. Mm-hmm, for sure. And so what are some of the challenges that you have faced while you've been doing this sort of work over the past year or so? I guess like number one, like, again, I have to go back like, yeah, I graduated, I guess, from undergrad, there's a, 
a little bit of enlightenment and I'm like, oh, okay, social justice. So then when I got into my master's, there was still like the same naivety that I maybe had when I was from high school going into my undergrad. And I'm just like, okay, I'll go to like the main people and just tell them that don't you care about diversity? (laughs) So I thought that was a good thing to do. And I'm like, yeah, we'll just do it. So I think when I started talking to people that are, you know, like representatives from like the National Dietetic Association or just educators here and there, the main thing that I remember, I went up and I'm like, so what are you doing about diversity? And the person kind of literally gaslit me and said, yeah, we care about diversity. Look at the people in the room. And honestly, it was mostly a room full of white people, except for maybe three people. And the way they framed diversity was diverse roles and ages. And we had a little bit of discussion and they're like, yeah, I want to move away from the picture of like a white skinny blonde lady holding an apple. And I'm like, okay. And then we talked a little bit and then they just phased me out of the conversation and didn't give me any attention. I'm just like, okay, like I feel really bad. And I opened up and there was a lot of these moments that happen with you just being vulnerable and you think someone wants to listen to you. And then you just get shut out or you're just made to feel like it's a non-problem problem. It's a you problem. So that kind of came up and down. And even to now, like there's been those situations where I think now more so recently, I get a lot of tone toning. Yeah, over the summer, I started getting like tone policed, I guess like, oh, Mm -hmm. of course we care. We want to do this. And I got like a bit of a backhanded compliment recently, someone saying, you're great. Your work is so great, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the person also kind of identifying their own barriers of maybe they're older or they seen the profession in a certain way, but also kind of making it a point that you need to be kind and not be judgmental of the past with and people. And then I'm just like, that's your opinion. That's your opinion. And I feel like you're trying to keep proving something with these type of posts everywhere. But yeah. Yeah, sometimes you just need to like, you know, you take what you get and you don't owe anyone an explanation after a follow up. Mm -hmm. Like if, you know, they comment on something, if they really want to change and stuff like that, like they can come and reach out to you and like do. I always say like sometimes people just want to come to me and be like, oh, like tell us what to do. Like I still get that. And I'm just like Like Google is your friend. (laughs) Yes. It's like, you know, like the number one thing is like, how do we get data? How do we get research? I'm like, how does Stats Canada? get demographic data through the census maybe we can use that as a platform i remember even saying that once to a national organization and them just saying like that's very sensitive information to ask to our members and i'm like well that's information you should have you know and then hearing like i hear a lot of stories in between and i guess before i used to be a little bit hesitant to be open as i am now But I'm like, you know what, things just need to be said, like, this is my truth. And if people have a rebuttal, then great. If you have reasoning why this couldn't be done, like, you know, I'm all for a conversation. I'm not doing a smear campaign saying these groups are better than this group. It's just stuff isn't being done. And you're held accountable. And if you care more about numbers and membership and fees, and that's up to you. But if you care about the people and the profession, that's also up to you. So you know, like that stuff just hasn't been done and it's been an uphill struggle. And, you know, like some places I go and I hear such great feedback and just had like a webinar the other day and people were really ecstatic and happy to hear things, but also understanding there's responsibility. 
But that's the thing I always wonder. I'm like, okay, people start posting Black Lives Matter, this matters, anti-racism, but what are they doing afterwards? You know, like it just seems like a bit like of a fad diet. Like you do it for a week, it's a detox, and then what are we doing afterwards? Like that's not the solution. So that's where I'm kind of at a crossroads right now. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like there's both sort of the internal systems of oppression that exist within the field of dietetics and then also dealing with the external systems of oppression that impact you on a day-to-day basis and then as a result impact the way people think and act both within the the industry but also towards one another interpersonally that's that's a huge challenge to have to deal with that i think resonates with so many people i wonder as well when we talk about the fad diet, for example, analogy that you made, and sort of drawing in diet culture, and also the association or intersection, I guess, of racism, scientific racism, or eugenics in particular, and fat phobia, and and how that lends to any of the systemic forms of oppression and racism that you see in this environment. Yeah, when you think about like the fad diet, or like, you know, things that really pop up, like when I think about the overall system of white supremacy, there's this chef Tessa RD on Instagram, like has really great posts about it. And like um, one of the posts said white urgency or the focus more on with white supremacy on quantity versus quality. So when this urgency comes and like the need to do something, the need to post, you know, like, yeah, that gets done. But like the follow up and, you know, that other discussion that needs to happen, like, yeah thinking about um yeah racism like the wording as well right like people still use the word caucasian that's we have that in our scientific journals and stuff like that i tend to just use white and black and like we need to use those type of terms and other stuff is outdated and that's always like you know you kind of need to just get people to understand that aspect of things and we don't learn that formally so it's like we're just using it because that's what they use in science. But like, we need to understand like science is racist too. So we need to un- debunk that as well. And yeah, when you think about diet culture, like a lot of intersections for sure. I'm just thinking like overall, yeah, the fight for social justice really encompasses everything. So if we're thinking about anti-racism and dietetics, yeah, that brings in a lot of things. Like we can definitely bring in being more weight inclusive being more anti-diet like yeah thinking about anti-diet culture like yeah it's not just a doing this diet to lose weight and everything else like it's not just a battle for one it's like a battle for all and it really brings a lot of the other aspects that need to be brought into attention like being weight inclusive being yeah food inclusive and food security and cultural diversity like everything comes together if we all are working together. And I think that's kind of what I'm trying to do with just maybe starting with the anti-racism side. And there's a lot of other people doing a lot of other work and it's just kind of coming and collecting together because this fight is for all of us. And like, yeah, justice for one isn't justice for all. And that's where we kind of all have to come together. Mm-hmm, absolutely. We've talked a little bit about like the challenges that exist and clearly there are a lot of them, but have there been any parts of sort of doing this work in the advocacy sense, particularly that you've recently done where it has been fulfilling at all, or you've seen sort of changes be made around these same challenges that, that encourage you to keep going? 
yeah, there's definitely those challenges, but what makes it worthwhile? It's really when you can really come with community and people within really feel supported. And whether it's you speak up a little bit at an event and someone else can ask a question, or you kind of make those platforms and conversations happen with different panels and groups. And that's been something I've been able to support and be a part of. As much as I think like, you know, what's one conversation going to do? What's one panel going to do? Like, it's not the be all or end all situation. It's kind of like it starts and sparks so many more things. And I'm just thinking there's so much more that I don't know. And there's so many more people that we all don't know that, you know, just kind of need to have a platform. So creating that platform has definitely created a stronger sense of community than maybe what we had before. And just formally organizing. And those are small wins. Small wins make big wins. And then that kind of leads to so much more that we don't know is in store, I guess, for the future. On your point of like the success or those moments of joy that, you know, the hope that kind of keeps you going. Yeah, it goes back to like for me, community building, people that maybe wouldn't be connected otherwise have been connected and you know, sometimes we have like a panel of discussion that maybe, honestly, like these really haven't been openly had in the profession. And it's just help people gather together and maybe even start conversations that might have been difficult in the workplace or in education settings and just having a bit of a foundation to start with. So I feel like that's been something super positive to contribute to. And I guess it it makes up for like sometimes, yeah, there is obviously emotional labor that goes into a lot of things. And before I used to just be like, okay, telling the people this is what you need to do and trying to go to the people that are in power and privilege. But we all know when you do that, if the other side isn't receptive and not ready to listen, you're kind of putting yourself on the line to dry. So it goes back to like, yeah, going with community, going with people and having those conversations, healing sharing things. I think that's been very heartfelt, like very kind of makes my heart smile and make sure makes me aware and sure that, you know, this work is for a good cause. It's, you know, helping one person that one person's helping so many more people along the way. So it's just kind of putting your hope in different ways and knowing that change is going to happen. It's coming and you're helping lead that in your own way. And starting the conversation sometimes is the hardest thing to do. But once you start it, it helps a lot of others just begin that as well. I think the emotional labor piece is something that resonates with a lot of people, in particular, like women of color, femmes of color, non-binary folks of color as well. Do you have any, I guess, tips based on your experience of ways you've helped yourself sort of cope with the emotional labor and the taxing nature of having to do that? Yeah, and I guess, like, yeah, even when you bring that up, like, I just read that word once. Actually, no, Sephora has told me that in other ways. Um, just um, Maybe that's in other ways. Like, yeah, that's emotional labor. Or things like she would do for me. She's like, I'm putting a lot of emotional labor. And I'm like, you're a friend. You care about me. Okay. So I never really understood the full meaning of the word until you start putting in the work. So in nutrition, if you're just talking, I guess, about a nutrition topic about like, yeah, this is like heart health and things like that. But when you, the emotional labor kind of comes when, if I'm going to start talking about the South Asian community and go deeper and then think about my own family 
And then maybe think about instances where people didn't have culturally competent care and things like that. You know, like it really puts you in the emotional space of like reliving a little bit of trauma, reliving those little down points that you don't want to relive. And also the heaviness that comes to the topics because maybe you haven't experienced it. Maybe someone else just tells you that and you kind of have to kind of live with that pain and kind of that weight on your shoulder. So yeah, just going through that, like in the beginning, very bad. I'm just like, okay, like I just feel sad. I'd cry a little bit and then (laughs) just keep to myself and then, you know, be busy and just leave that alone. But no, like you really do need to have those people around you to talk about things. Like I tell my mom all the time, like if I have an event, she asks me just like, how was it? And maybe she won't know everything about it, but I'd just be like, well, this kind of made me sad or this reminded me of this. And if it's something, you know, about childhood or other things, like just talking about it, I think that helps. But talking about it with people you feel safe with. I think before you used to be vulnerable with anyone, being like, yeah, this feels like this. Just thinking people know your experience, but you know, you're, you can choose who you want to invite in. So definitely be mindful of who you invite in and share your vulnerabilities with because otherwise you're getting more vulnerable and then you can't cope with it. I think other things are like, with that heaviness, you kind of need to release in other ways. Like I haven't done this in a while. I do this a little bit more. So now when I was avoiding, it, I wouldn't do it. I would journal like, you know, sometimes you have to write things down. Sometimes you don't want to talk to anyone else after an event and that's fine. And sometimes like, you know, it's planning your day around it. Like if you, you're going to do this event, and you know, it's going to be very draining, like not going to go out with friends or talk to friends or go out or like, yeah, commit myself to another event type of thing if you need alone time like that's just what you need and I think yeah for everyone it's something different and it doesn't look the same sometimes like I guess we use the word self-care and things like that but it's really what you need and that's very individual base as well and you shouldn't feel guilty for needing that space and time for yourself I think I used to feel super guilty I'm like no I did this now I feel sad but I need to be there for someone else but maybe you are self-sabotaging yourself and the other person because you're not fully there for them. If you said, I was going to commit to talking to you after talking about like decolonizing for like an hour and stuff like that. So you have to like, you know, plan your days around it. I think that's been something I've been more mindful to do and not to take on all those other commitments that, you know, if you know your energy's low, like don't drain it more. You can't do anything with an empty cup. You need to always fill it, have it filled as well. Kind of those analogies, like the the airplane mask and all of that. Yeah, taking care of yourself is how you can then have the capacity to take care of other people is a really important note. I think I want to go back to something you had mentioned before. So cultural competency when it comes to doing care work. Do you mind expanding on that a little bit? I think that's a really good concept for folks to be able to learn a little bit about from racialized youth in particular. What does that mean? What does it look like? And then maybe specifically what it looks like in in the work that you're doing. Yeah, and I guess when you think about cultural competency and like, like we do have those competencies in dietetics and like that's something you can never fully be competent in because everything's changing. Like social context for different cultural racial groups, even thinking about how people identify pronouns, gender, sexual orientation, like, you know, whatever kind of makes up your identity and those other social cultural aspects, like that's something we're always learning and it's lifelong learning for that. But what doesn't change is like the blueprint that you have in place to understand and 
I guess, yeah, understand how people want to be treated. I remember going through school, you're always like, the motto for like my elementary school was like, um, treat others the way you want to treat yourself. And like, you know, I just went through life so much like that. I'm like, I want to be treated well. And like, yeah, there's like those basic things. But at the end of the day, maybe what you want for yourself isn't what other people want for themselves. So you need to kind of understand that part. And I think that's where when you think about healthcare and everything, like that cultural competence piece that kind of is added on to like person-centered care because it is about the patient, the client, person, all this analogy that we use, but like it's about what's best for them and what they want. Again, we can always make our judgments like, oh, health professionals, like this is what you need to do and stuff. End of the day, it needs to be what the person wants to do and needs to be culturally adapted to help like meet their needs. Like whether that is like, something is thinking about like diet, like if you're suggesting things and someone's a vegetarian and maybe also understanding if they eat halal or kosher, you need to know like knowing all these intersections kind of allows you to be culturally competent in the care that you're going to provide. And yeah, nothing can like, you know, thinking about recommendations and advice, like if it's not culturally competent or if it's not person-centered, like and it's not customized that way, like it's not useful for that person or anyone. It really goes back to putting the power back with the person and what's best in their interest and for them and Mm -hmm. what they actually want to do. Yeah, it sounds like there's a big piece around consent in there that I Mm -hmm. think is really key. So in the work that you're doing now, do you have any opportunities that are available for young people, racialized youth in particular, but young people in general to get involved with that our listeners might be able to support any upcoming projects that you're working on? And then where can they find you and and find your work? Yeah, like there's, you know, honestly, with projects, some things just start like within a few hours or days, right? Like I, but that's something I think I've been taking a little bit of a backseat with just because I have internship going on, I have to do my thesis work. But definitely, like, if people are in the dietetic profession, if you're students in nutrition and food, definitely check out the Diversify Dietetics Canada Facebook page, and I'll definitely provide you with the links. And I was just thinking, overall, like, there's things I do in my community too, right? Like, whether it's, like, with the Youth Food Council. And I guess it's kind of like an ask in general for others Maybe, yeah, we don't all live in the same place. There's definitely things, um, organizations, places near you. Maybe you've always wanted to be a part of it. Maybe you have an idea. And I think with everything going on in the world, new ideas and cool ideas are always invited and different perspectives are always invited, should be invited actually. And you can make space for that. So like, yeah, if you have an idea and collaborating with people, I always just say, like, you know, pitch something to someone. You never know. Maybe they're busy for it, but if they're not, then maybe they know someone else. So sometimes you create your own opportunities. That's what I kind of go with. And I guess for myself, like um, with the DD Canada community, we're kind of recruiting ambassadors right now. Hopefully we're, I think, trying to grow the community a little bit more. But other than that, like, yeah, nothing that super strikes me. But you know, I always post things on my social media. So if you want to follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at GurneyKDemi, that's where the little posts come, and maybe more cool ideas and opportunities. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of your expertise and experiences with us. 
and our, our listeners today, before we let you go, there is something that we like to do just because as racialized youth, we don't always get to sort of have fun and make jokes. And, and for me, humor and laughter, I think is what I use to sort of deal with the racism that exists every day that I have to deal with. And so as young leaders of color, we're constantly actually trying to reduce the harm that racism has both on ourselves and our communities, while we do something active and and actionable to actually try to end it. But what if we could do so instantly? What is your best pitch for how you would end racism in your most creative and and hilarious way? Yeah, and I guess I'm just thinking about those little trends that have been happening during COVID and maybe taking yeah maybe something from that it's like you know when everyone just wanted to make sourdough bread whether Mm -hmm. or not you had it or not you're just like sourdough bread where do I get the starter you know like what if we could end racism with sourdough bread you know you get the starter from some person someone in your community and then you know you're always just like passing it along and then everyone has all these loaves and hopefully if you're gluten-free like there's other uh, alternatives there's a gluten-free sourdough yeah Yeah, we'll we'll pass it along as well right and you know like it's just yeah spreading it that way and then you know you have some carbs you consume the sourdough and then it it removes all your white supremacy yeah it cleanses your body if you will yeah i love it I think that's great. I think I think white people love sourdough. <laughs> so that's a very effective measure of distribution. Yeah, it just yeah, it has to go to your target market. Exactly. <laughs> that's great. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we will be sure to put all of your links in the description so that folks can follow you and, and pay attention to any of the upcoming opportunities that you have. Yeah, and thanks for having me, Sarisha. And like, yeah, thanks for listening to this rant. I I look back at some things I said, I'm like, well, that's just the way they had to come out. That's just the way they're going to come out. <laughs>